Thank you, Doug and Bert. Good morning. For the last 20 years or so, Colette has practiced the spiritual discipline of thankfulness, and she is very intentional about it. As a result, she rarely ever complains, at least out loud. In contrast to that, I can always find something to complain about. And sometimes when I do, she will remind me that gratitude is a more appropriate response. I was complaining about that snow we had a couple of weeks ago. You remember that? She said, why not be thankful that God has given us a place to live where the snow is mostly all in the mountains? We used to have to deal with 120 inches a year of it. By nature, I tend to be expectant and critical, which are character attributes that lead to disappointment and complaint. But I want to become more grateful by nature and gracious, which will generate attributes like wonder and contentment and compassion. And so I also practice expressing thanks to God. It's a discipline and to those around me. And today, I am renewing that commitment. Consistent gratitude is not easy, but is an effective antidote against complaining and against disappointment. So this morning, during this celebration that Doug has organized for us, and thank you for doing that, Doug, I want to weigh in on this virtue of expressing thanks to God, and then we'll practice it together. So I want you to think of something that you're specifically thankful to God for. That's where we're going this morning. Let's think about two things, and I will refer to them as conundrums. The first is the cosmic conundrum, and the second is the food conundrum. First, the cosmic one. We'll start with a book, Rare Earth, Why Complex Life is Uncommon in the Universe. It's a very fascinating book. It is not a Christian book. I think I may have showed you this once before. It's written by a couple of PhDs out of the University of Washington. One is an evolutionary geologist and the other is a professor of astronomy. These two guys have a lot to say about how planet Earth and really the whole universe seems mysteriously well-suited to the existence of life. Let me read you just a, a short statement from this book. It says, Here is one of science's most profound mysteries. Why is the universe, against all odds, so remarkably hospitable to life? Many of the most fundamental characteristics of our cosmos, the relative strengths of gravity, electromagnetism, the forces operating inside nuclei of atoms, as well as the masses and abundance of different particles, are so finely tuned that if just one of them were slightly different, life as we know it couldn't exist, end quote. I really enjoy stuff like this, so indulge me. I want to share a few examples with you. Think for a moment about two of the most basic forces in the whole universe, magnetism and gravity. These are common, everyday things we we deal with all the time. And any of you that have taken a fall might think that gravity is pretty strong. 
but magnetism is a billion, billion, billion times stronger. And that's a lot. Compared to magnetism, you might think, well, gravity hardly even matters. But did you know that if gravity had been designed to be even one one-hundredth of one percent stronger in its relationship to magnetism, there would never have been any stars massive enough to hold planets in orbit around them. No planets, no home planet. No home planet, no home. Scientists have no idea why the ratio between gravity and magnetism is the way it is. There is no known law for it, but they all agree it's perfectly fine-tuned to support life as we know it. Here's the question. Is that a coincidence or is that a gift? Another example. There are two known forces at work inside of the, the nucleus of every atom. One is called the weak force, and the other is called the strong force. They are creatively named forces. Did you know that if the weak force were just a percent weaker, just one percent weaker, all the hydrogen in the universe would have ended up as helium? You might think, well, so what? Helium is good. It doesn't explode and burn like hydrogen. Well, guess what? If you've got no hydrogen, you've got no water. If you've got no water, you've got no life. The universe would be a desert. On the other hand, if that weak force were just slightly stronger than it is, just a half a percent stronger, then stars couldn't make oxygen. There would be no oxygen in the whole universe. And that would be bad for those of us who like to breathe. Scientists don't understand why the weak force has been designed with the precise value that it has. There's no known law for it, but they all agree it is absolutely fine-tuned to support the existence of life as we know it. Here's the question. Is that a coincidence or is that a gift? Another example. Let's consider the strong force for a moment. That's that other force that's at work in the nucleus of every atom. If the strong force were just 5% weaker, we would have a universe with no stars whatsoever, just dust. It would be a dusty place. But if the strong force were just 2% stronger, no protons would be able to form, so we would have a universe without atoms. The precise setting of the strong force makes it possible to have both planets, stars, and atoms. It's precisely balanced. Now think about plain old carbon. Carbon is the vital core of every molecule connected with life. Guess where carbon is made, other than on the bottom of the frying pan when I do the cooking? Carbon is made in the interior of stars. Scientists have discovered an astounding coincidence having to do with carbon in the ratio of the strong force to magnetism. Follow me now on this one, all right? The ratio between the strong force and magnetism makes it possible 
for carbon-12 to reach an excited state of exactly 7.65 milli-electron volts at the temperature in the interior of stars, which creates a resonance involving helium-4, beryllium-8, and carbon-12, allowing the necessary binding to take place during a tiny window of opportunity less than a billionth of a billionth of a second long. Isn't that cool? I have no blooming idea what any of that means. I just read it to you out of the book, but it's true, okay? And here's the point. Scientists don't understand why the strong force has been designed with the precise value that it has, or why the strong force to magnetism ratio has been designed with the precise value it has, but they all agree. They are both exquisitely fine-tuned to support life. Is that a coincidence or is it a gift? If it were just one, maybe two of these things, you might be able to say, well, that's just a coincidence, lucky us. But there are about two dozen of these very precise values that we know of. And there is no known scientific law that requires them to be what they are. But the fact that they are what they are, that against absolutely all odds, the fundamental building blocks of the physics and chemistry of the universe seems to be so exquisitely and perfectly tuned for life that if even one of them were ever so slightly different, life would be impossible. That's not a coincidence. This is known in scientific circles as the anthropic principle, which literally means having to do with or designed especially for humanity. Anthropos in Greek means man. Okay? Here's the conundrum now. What do you do with the anthropic principle? What do you do with this? Well, one thing you can do with it is to deny it. The authors of this book, that's what they do. They deny it. Even after they argue so persuasively for its existence, they say this only seems to be a principle because we just haven't discovered the real reason yet. But we will. We're smart. We'll get it. In the meantime, this anthropic principle, it's like the duct tape of cosmology, they say. It is not permanent, and it is certainly not elegant. It just holds our understanding together until we can discover the real reason. It's just a crutch. It just appears that the universe was designed with human beings in mind. It couldn't actually have been designed that way because it wasn't designed. It was an accident. We all just got really, really lucky. We beat, we beat the one in a gazillion odds about 25 times. Or, on the other hand, you could consider the anthropic principle to be further evidence that God did, in fact, create the universe just for us. That some master inventor had us in mind when he thought up this whole place. In which case, the Bible tells us what our plain and elegant response should be. Thank you, God, for this amazing home that you have built for us. What an awesome being you are. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love, what? 
endures forever. To him alone who does great wonders like the superb design and fine-tuning of all these parameters that make life possible. To, to him alone who does these great wonders, who by his understanding made the heavens, who spread out the earth upon the water, his love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, the sun to rule the day, the moon and stars to govern the nights, his love endures forever. Thank you, God. You are an awesome God, a master designer, a marvelous builder. That's what our response ought to be. You made it all just right, wonderfully and perfectly right. Not just so that there would be plenty of oxygen for us to breathe and water for us to drink and carbon and atomic orbital shells at just the right orbital distances, but that there would be color and sound and sparkling beauty, wonderful flavors, laughter and joy, friendship and, and, and loyalty, honor and love, exhilaration and satisfaction. You made all this stuff. And it just fits together so perfectly. You really are good. Your love really does endure forever. You have lavished it on us, and you have proven that by what you have made and given to us. What a gift giver you are. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies portray the works of his hands. And to those to, whom a, those to whom a portion of it have been given, we say, thank you. Thank you. That's the cosmic conundrum. What do you do with the anthropic principle? I, for one, choose gratitude to the one who made it all. Now, Completely unrelated subject. The second conundrum, the food conundrum. Most Americans ate a pretty tasty feast on Thursday. I know I did. We sat down at a table and we were presented with an enormous quality of wonderful food. For some Americans who ate on Thursday, the feast was called Turkey Day. Now even though more than one out of every 10 human beings in the world go to bed hungry every night. And even though about 8,500 children in the world starved to death on Thursday, most people who ate the Turkey Day feast did so in good conscience and in full assurance that they worked for it, they deserved it, or that they're Americans. And that's just what America is all about. After all, Food comes from Safeway and Sunny Farms and Costco. Lucky us. They were thankful, but not to anybody. And by the way, catch that quote in your bulletins by Cornelius Plantingay, if you will. He's one of the foremost philosophers of our day. On the other hand, there were people who ate on Thursday, and they did not call it Turkey Day. They called it Thanksgiving and they thought about the fact that every bite comes from God. It does. 
In which case, the Bible tells us what our simple, elegant response should be. Thank you, God, for the delicious food you have given me. You are a generous being. He is. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Good things. Even Brussels sprouts. Psalm 136, which we just read together. To him who gives food to every creature, give thanks to the God of heaven for his love endures forever. Our whole life is a conundrum, really. Our health, our talents, our freedom, our families, our friends, our jobs. Where does this stuff all come from, anyway? Is it all just the result of cause and effect? Time and chance? Blind luck? Hard work? Or does it come from God? And how you answer that question will determine what your response is. It will determine what your attitude in life is going to be. If all these things come from God, then the Bible tells us what our simple, elegant response should be. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There are some fundamental characteristics of human character that form the basic bedrock of what people ought to be. Traits like honesty, integrity, compassion, these are not just add-ons. These are at the root of who we are. These are the things that, that all human beings are designed to come with. A kind of minimum daily requirement, RMD, of what it means to be a decent human being. Talent, looks, abilities, intelligence, those are the extras. Those are not necessary. You don't have to be young to be a decent human being. You don't have to be good looking, even though our culture puts great value on, on those two today. You don't have to be, a, to be smart to be a decent human being. You don't have to be wealthy. You can be young, beautiful, smart, and rich and still be lacking in basic human decency if you've got no compassion and you've got no honesty. You can be poor, dumb, and ugly and still be a decent human being if you do have the basic MDRs. We could draw a list, draw up a list of what those would be, those qualities, and if we did, gratitude would be one of the essential qualifications on the list. Do you know why? Because when it's not practiced regularly, two things happen to the human heart. The human heart loses sight of God as a generous, gracious giver of all good things. And then it begins to shrivel and take on an inward focus. And greed starts to grow there. A greed that eventually manifests itself as an attitude of entitlement and then ultimately as idolatry. An astonishing transformation slowly takes place until self 
replaces God as the object of worship. Guess what that's called? That's called idolatry. Idolatry is rooted in a lack of gratitude. I didn't just make that up. Paul says it in the first chapter of the book of Romans, and you can go home and read it there for yourself this afternoon. This morning, every one of us has been given one blessing after another from God. There are verses in the Bible, and we've read a few of them this morning, that give us uh, uh, some instructions on, on what kind of things specifically we should be thankful to him for. For the fact that he is good. Imagine if he wasn't. Imagine if the great God of the universe were really a tyrant. For the fact that his love endures forever. That he's steadfast. Imagine if he weren't. Imagine what it would be like if God had a limit. If God ran out. If he got tired or bored or disinterested in putting up with erring people. If he wore out. But he doesn't. Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. We're to thank him for justice, especially ultimate justice. We're to thank him for salvation, for an eternal inheritance. Imagine if there were nothing beyond the grave, if this life was all there, there, there was. A few short years with a lot of trouble and misery toward the end of it, and then out, out, brief candle, no hope. We're to thank him for what he has made, which is basically everything. We're to thank him for rescue, for delivering us from our enemies. And that includes death, because death is an enemy. Remember, we read that. Every one of us here has a rescue story. Question is, what's yours? And have you thanked him for it lately? We're to thank him for what we have to eat. Imagine if we didn't have anything to eat. You're going to go home today. There's going to be no meal this afternoon. There'll be no meal this evening, no breakfast in the morning, no lunch tomorrow, no meal tomorrow evening. Imagine. We're to thank him for leading us to where we want to go, for healing us from illness. We're to thank him, listen to this, for the love uh, that's coming to the generations yet to come, he says. Think about that one, old people. We thank God because he is going to continue to love our children and our grandchildren long after we're gone. Aren't you glad for that? We don't have to worry and bite our nails because God's love endures from generation to generation. It endures forever. He loves our kids. We're to thank him for his help to us. We're to thank him for wisdom and understanding that he's given to us. These are a few of the, of the specific things that the Bible says that we should thank him for. And so I thought it would be good as we finish this up to try a little experiment this morning. Imagine with me for just a moment, what if God had a mailbox in heaven? Now, I know that he doesn't. Mailboxes are old technology. He doesn't use mailboxes or cell phones or Twitter. Well, maybe he uses Twitter now that Elon Musk has it. I don't know. 
God can read our thoughts, and all we have to do is think a thank you, and he's got it. But just for the sake of imagining, what if he did have one? What if God had a mailbox in heaven? What kind of mail would he get from you, mostly? Letters of request? Probably quite a few of those, right? Grant applications? That's okay. God tells us to ask him for stuff. He does. He loves to give. Would there be any thank you letters there? Imagine writing a thank you card to God. This is Thanksgiving week. Maybe this morning, to close our service, maybe it would be appropriate for us to do just that, to write a thank you card to God. In the pews this morning, Jay has placed some specific thank you cards, in addition to the other ones that we have there for you to use week by week. We've put about 200 thank you cards out, actually. And there's some pencils and pens there. And here's what I would like you to do. Take a card. If there's not one near you, reach to a pew in front of you and get one. Take a pencil or a pen and right now just write a specific thanks to God, all right? Be specific. Don't just say, thank you for all your blessings to me. Tell him exactly what you're thanking him for and why it means so much to you. Start it off by writing his name. He has a name. So make it personal. And then, specifically, what you want to say thank you for and why it means so much to you. Take about two minutes to do this. Maybe two, two or three. And then tuck it in the envelope and take it home with you. If you really want to cause some problems, address it to him and put it in the post office. Just do that, okay? Write your thank you. And then in a couple minutes, Doug is going to come up and he's going to sing his thanks to God. And we're going to get to listen in. Okay? Thank you, God.